As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What you've just heard is a very real memory for me. Of? Of a trip to Bush Gardens in Williamsburg, Virginia, to ride the Loch Ness Monster, which at the time was the scariest roller coaster on the East Coast. And, and right. And what an appropriate name. Yes. Yes. For tonight's episode. It's going to be but, a Scottish theme tonight. But Scott, let me ask you this. What scared you about that? Well, that roller coaster... When you stand below it and you look up at it, it is monumentally intimidating. It's 114 right. feet tall. There's a 60-mile-an-hour drop. It has two interlocking loops. It goes over the water. There's a reason it's called the Loch Ness Monster. It's very cool and frightening, bright yellow. And I just had always kind of been a little bit afraid of roller coasters in general, and my aunt thought it would be big fun to take me on that. And when, when she yelled that... We were in the front cars, and it wasn't just me that screamed when she said it. It was everybody on the roller coaster as we plunged at 60 miles an hour down the side of an 11-story building. Fearing for life and limb. Well, yes. And speaking of limb, did you raise your hands? I, I'm i one of those people that's a little afraid. I'm afraid they're going to you know, Yeah, that just seems get foolish to me. Yeah, you yeah. don't do that. You don't stick your arm <laughs> out the window driving. You know, you learn that as a kid. Right. Uh, don't, your dad tells you don't do that. Yeah. Uh, but you do a little bit of the, the flying bit. Yes. Uh, but she was not afraid. No. She, she wasn't. saw an opportunity to amplify your fear yeah. in the name of fun. Well, yeah, what she thinks is fun. And, the, and <laughs> you know, whether they liked it or not, the rest of the people all on the other cars behind you. Yes. Uh, but, and this is the, this is what we're getting at here. Uh, it's a controlled fear, right? Yes. Because yes. you know, roller coasters are safe. Yes. For the you, most part, yeah. you can pretty much say you can assume that you're going to live through the ride. Right. Even though you were not in control of that, you weren't steering the thing, you're not driving it. Right. However, we've made this other parallel. When you are driving, and you're a man who enjoys uh, fast machines and uh, thrilling experiences. Yes. Uh, I'm not with, an adrenaline junkie, though. No, you're not. Clear. No, no. You're yeah. very, you know, I got to say, you're, yeah. you're very rational. You're a very responsible person. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's what I say. When I ride with you, and, and uh, if we're in a... Um, uh, you know, we don't go that fast, but if we're off-roading or something, I feel very safe because you've taken the time to study. You don't take chances where they're not necessary. Uh, so I feel perfectly safe. And in that environment, it's a lot of fun. Right. However, there are some instances where you maybe poke the fear bear and uh, you're maybe tempting a little bit. And uh, is would you consider Halloween to be something like that? Well, Halloween has... A, I think one of the great things about Halloween is, you know, the, the psychologists all say that you have to confront your fears. And I think hum humanity confronts its fear of death through Halloween and through the rituals associated with Halloween all over the world, including Dia de los Muertos and, right, right. and whatever other iterations of it there are, which, you know, and Dia de los Muertos is a great example of turning it around into something fun and going to the cemetery and celebrating your, your dead relatives and right. partying with them and playing music. It's, oh, lots of, well, lots of great, you know, fun and it's a family celebration, but it, uh, touches on something that I personally believe in is that you nobody really dies. You you they're there with you. You are. Oh, you putting that out there, huh? Huh? You're gonna go ahead and put that out there. What's that? Yeah, there's you're, an airplane. You're, oh, I thought you were talking about the airplane. No, flying no, overhead. no. I'm talking about your belief system. <laughs> yeah. Not not so much. I mean, yeah, personally, I don't think 
that's it, and then now people are drinking your tequila. I don't think that you're probably going to, you're, you're tasting that, but you're tasting that in spirit, and right. that's the idea. You're there with your family, There's your favorite foods are there, everyone's having a good time, and I think that's a, I prefer, you know what, I don't know, of course I can't say what happens, but I prefer to believe that. Right. It should be a celebration of your life, not just mourning I agree. Your loss. I couldn't agree more. Like New Orleans, like what they do in New Orleans is an amazing. Oh yeah, amazing. At, a, at, a, yeah. at a great right. It's starting off. Plus, I love uh, I love jazz. Uh, yeah. So it's and it looks like it. You know, it starts off somber, and then uh, there's a call from the from the band leader, like, "Hey, let's celebrate this person's life. Let's have some fun. Listen to some good music and and have some good food and just celebrate still being alive while keeping this person's memory alive as well." And that said, as, as happy as you might be in all those moments and all the fun that you might have at a Dio de los Muertos party, there's there's still a few cemeteries that you might not want to go have a party at. Well, there, you know what? Because that's the other side of it is that uh, it's a way station then to the other side, which we don't know about and can be a little bit scary. A thin place. Ex- yes, very good. A thin place is the, uh, I think it's a Scots... Or an English uh, saying, yeah, a place that's close to the other side, where the where the veil is very thin, and uh, they can be pretty scary, as we're about to find out. Now, are there any cemeteries that kind of scare you? This is going to be the only one. <laughs> Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I wouldn't be surprised if this killed me. Spiritualist minister Colin Grant, after performing an exorcism at Greyfriars Kirkyard, he was dead two months later. Tonight's show is about the root of fear and people's desire to look unflinchingly into the eyes of the things that scare them the most. Come with us to Greyfriars Kirkyard, Scotland. So there's a cemetery in Scotland that is world famous for a statue of a little dog known as Greyfriars Bobby. <laughs> the cemetery is called Greyfriars Kirkyard. Kirkyard being, you explain this to me, this is the Scottish term for church. Yeah, actually, church, it's, right, churchyard. Uh, exactly. It's, yeah. it's uh, an old Scots Gaelic word, uh, kirk, just meaning church. So when you hear us say Greyfriars Kirk, it's just Greyfriars Church or Churchyard or Kirkyard. Okay, so... Greyfriars Bobby was a little terrier that had a master who apparently worked at the at the church or in the in the in the churchyard or at the kirkyard, and unfortunately the owner who was a shepherd named John Gray, come here, boy, died when the when the dog was relatively young, and the story has it that the dog stayed at his grave for fourteen years every day until it eventually died in eighteen seventy two. Now, so this wasn't too long ago. This is more of a recent history. But this is the right. reason that people, a lot of tourists go there to see the statue of this little dog. It's which is the it's, most photographed yeah. statue in Scotland, apparently. In Scotland. It's, yeah, oh yeah. It's one of the most, uh, and uh, and he's a sky terrier, I believe. Yes, right. That's yeah. right. A and, sky terrier. Uh, but it's a... It's a Very it's, cute. We have pictures of him on yeah, our website. He, but it, the thing is that he looks like he's maybe guarding the uh the churchyard the graveyard yes yes and so the but the interesting thing about this is um according to a book which we sourced a lot of information for our show tonight um it's a book called the ghost that haunted itself by author jan andrew henderson in this book he says that john gray the shepherd is actually buried a mile away so the story isn't even really accurate but But nobody wants to hear that but Scott, it's an astonishing legend. Yes, right. Nice plug. Yeah, nice plug. Terrible. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's one of those things where the uh, the legend is much more uh, favorable to the reality, and because you want to believe that uh, you know right. the little dog there. And I think I read some of that story where um, you know he would go sit there and uh, rain or shine and cold weather or you know or good, and uh, they started taking care of the dog and they just kind of let him. He didn't have Stay. a license, yeah, yeah, and he didn't have a master, so he was yeah. kind of illegal, and so yeah. they would they would start taking care of him and feeding him. And, and Disney and, uh, made a movie about it, apparently. Oh, did they? At some point, yeah. Oh. I never saw it. I don't even know what it's called, but I did find that in, in some. I did find that in some of our research that they oh. had made a movie about it. So the story has it that John Gray, who was his master, is buried there, and there is a tombstone there for John Gray. But it's not really a tombstone; it's more of a monument, and it says. Yeah. This monument was donated by American lovers of Bobby or something like right. that. Well, so. people look. People love animals. They love animal stories, especially ones of loyalty. Uh, I believe there is a uh, there's a legend of a cat 
in uh, Japan at the uh, train station that uh, his owner went on the got on the train, left, and whatever happened never came back. But the cat showed up every day for like you know twelve years. That's so sad. Well, I mean, I don't know. To a cat, what's time? He's just thinking like, well, it could be today. Could could be today. Well, no. So, Forrest, that little dog is not the only thing that Greyfriars Kirkyard is famous for. It has a pretty colorful past, right? Oh, it's it's very rooted in Scottish history and especially a, a Scottish religious freedom. What what city is it in? It's in the capital city of Edinburgh. Oh, and I'm thinking, nicely I, done. Nicely no, done. thank you. Yeah. Well, I think if you're American, you say Edinburgh. Yeah. And, and we're going to uh, try to pretend we didn't watch the just, YouTube video that tells you how to say. <laughs> well, Edinburgh. just don't just don't say Edinburgh. You're not you're you're not giving it proper uh, respect, probably. Um, so here's a little rundown, just so you kind of get uh, the history of it, and you can see where these characters are coming from. So essentially, the site where it was on was a uh, housed Franciscan monks, and they were known, that order is known as the Grey Friars. And I believe, you know, the Dominican monks, they're known as the Black Friars. So you can kind of see, that's, it's, that's where the name comes from. Right. There was a friar, is friary a word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. There was a friary the, right, there right. before the church. Yes, and also if we haven't already said this, the kirkyard is a cemetery, by the way. Well, it's yeah. This is um, and this is a little interesting thing. In the center of of the old town of Edinburgh, Edinburgh, nicely done, Edinburgh. In the center of the old town, the main church, and I believe it's called the the National Kirk of Scotland, the National Church, and that is Saint Giles, and that's been there uh, probably a few hundred years before that. Very old church, still standing. And so as, uh, as with a lot of European tradition, as people passed away, you're buried in the churchyard. And there's usually – and even in little towns, there's a, lot, there's a cemetery next to the church. Right. Uh, well, as people started filling that up, it got overflowing. And so they started uh, diverting the bodies going from St. Giles, and, and, and they needed a place. And the Greyfriars area, where, the, where they were formerly housing, uh, where the friars were, that was – uh, dissolved, I think, in, uh, let's see here, uh, 1561. Okay. So there was a town decree and saying, like, let's, let's find a— church, p- wasn't the church already built by the time they did the decree? Uh, let's see. I uh, feel like it was. I mean, I don't know for sure. I know that it took no, like I think 20 it, years to build yeah, the church, Yeah, exactly. Well, the, Classic the, sort of pillars of the earth style, actually. Right. So the construction began in 1602. And was completed around 1620. Okay. Uh, but the actual plot of land was founded in 1561, and specifically to take these overflow burials. Okay, so they were the burials were started before the church. Exactly. Okay. So it's had a long history of dead people being there. Right, and, and it's a, it's a it's based it's a mound now, right? Because there's uh, so many. Probably. I one I read that there's up to 500,000. Bodies. Oh really? Yeah. Wow, that is quite a few. I don't know how that works though, because the population in the mid 1600s in Edinburgh. Yes, yeah. was, was only thirty five thousand. Ah, well, so, I, I mean that number is probably wildly inaccurate. But yeah. I did read that. I can I can't yeah. cite the source. Uh, no, I mean there, that's the thing is that a lot of people were interned there, and interred. during that it and really yeah you always say interned. It's an intern is like Monica Lewinsky. Interned no, no, is that's when you're dead. That's what I meant. You, you yeah, okay. get an internship unpaid. Yeah, oh, okay. There was. A, I'm yeah. sorry. They were in. You're absolutely right. Okay. Maybe I don't know. I have to look it up. So many people over the years were interred there, and uh, yeah, it started, started to overflow. But there was a decree from the town council the saying— The Edinburgh Council, which comes yes, up all the time. Right. They're still there, I believe. Yes. Well, yeah. they're still—they they have something to do with the trust of, yeah. of the I mean, it's new property. guys, of course. So they would be— No, no, they're not 300 years old. Yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, they're— <laughs> You no, chosen <laughs> poorly. Yeah. You need some, uh, some modern thinking, but basically there was an official decree that, hey, let's, put a, let's start putting these folks— Outside of the town, and so Greyfriars actually sits on the southern edge, I believe, of the old town part of uh, right. Edinburgh. It's not outside town now, but when it back yes. then, it was on the edge of town. Uh, so that's the start of the building as a place of worship. Now the church starts taking an important role in the history of Scottish religious independence when the National Covenant was signed there on the pulpit on February twenty eighth, sixteen thirty eight. Signed right there at the kirkyard. In the, well, yes, in, in, the, the, church. in the church. You know, it was yeah. an official ceremony. Yeah, in the church. And yeah. what that was is there were a lot of practicing Presbyterians, I think being an offshoot of Protestantism. And uh, they're, they were happy with that. They're, they believed that that was best for Scotland. That's the, um, 
that's the or you know those are the teachings and the principles that they wanted to follow at that time there was no head of the church of scotland right the scottish kirk so uh which you did have in england uh, starting I, I believe the split came henry the eighth uh split from the roman catholic church i think mostly because he, he they wouldn't grant him an annulment from Catherine of Aragon, who he just desperately wanted a divorce from, and they were like, no way. And so he said, well, I'm going to start my own church then. Right. That's all that, you know, there, that's England. So that's what's going on there. And, and really what it boils down to is this, this is a time of great tumult in Scotland and Europe in general, but uh, the, the plague coming in 1645. Yes. 300 years after it first showed up in Italy, now it's made its way to Edinburgh. Yeah. Uh, at certain times, as much as fifty percent of the population was infected. Oh yeah, huge numbers, and and, uh, and in the in the port cities even more because they're they're taking in people from uh, other world other, travelers. Yes, they're stacking them high and deep, and and uh, and it's taken its toll. And almost uh, what do they say? Nearly a third of the population, I believe, of of your all of Europe uh, perished. Yes, it was so bad at, at one point in Edinburgh. These doctors were coming around in these crazy masks. You have to look them up. We have a picture of it on our website. This mask has like a long beak on the front. They're still worn at masquerades now. Very frightening looking because they had these herbs tucked into the long noses because they believed that the <laughs> smell of the herbs would prevent bad smelling germs yeah. from giving you the plague. And these doctors would come by and they'd lance boils and do all kinds of horrible oh, crap. Yeah. And then when they came out of the house that you were in... A lot of times, if they felt like you were too far gone, they would order the house bricked up. Whether you were getting better or not. Yeah. Or yeah, just, I, you know, yeah. hey, better safe than sorry. Exactly. Yeah, there was so much paranoia about the plague that people, you could just pass out drunk on the street and you'd find yourself <laughs> in a coffin. It was a bring out your dead yeah. kind of a thing. They, they, would, yeah. they would scoop you up and put you in a coffin and yeah. bury you. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. But there was a plan for this. Inside the coffin was a little bell. Oh, that's... A little, like, you, and yeah. you would ring the bell. But the only problem is the bell was underground with you. I, You know what? That sounds like a solution offered by people who don't really care if you're ringing the bell or not. Yeah, <laughs> it's I like, don't know what you know what? It's better safe than sorry. Well, you know, over time, because so much death was happening at, at Greyfriars, a lot of coffins that were exhumed for one reason or another, whether they were moving things around or whatever, they right. did find uh, bite marks and claw marks inside oh, the coffins. Yeah. Can you imagine? Talk about a fear. That's a fear. I mean, I don't think I'm the only one, but, you know, when being buried alive... Yeah. Just like... Well, no. And and it's, you know, it's been exploited in various films. Well, yeah, sure. Uh, Kill Bill. Kill Bill. Oh, and then uh, there's an Edgar Allan Poe with, uh, movie with John Cusack. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Alice, the lovely Alice Eve, where she is buried alive. Oh. And, uh, you know, just for a while, but still, you can imagine. And imagine if you're a claustrophobic. No. Like, what worse... Body you're double. Either, boy, you're either going to... Body uh, double. Body double, yeah. yeah you're you're either... That's a, that's a good one. You're either going to face your fears and get over it, yeah. like you will with a roller coaster, or, well, you're probably maybe not going to survive that. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that was happening is the body snatchers were coming because the university in Edinburgh had a medical school, right. and they needed bodies. And yeah. so the, the grave snatchers would go over to Greyfriars Kirk, and they would... They would. They had a special method of digging a hole behind the tombstone. Oh. They would go down vertically and open the coffin on the end. Yeah. And pull the body out. And then just fill the hole back up. And then from above, it wasn't clear that it had actually been exhumed. Illegally well, exhumed. It's pretty resourceful. Yeah, really you know, they take it but, down yeah. there to the school and meet some, you yeah. know, medical student. I believe, uh, yeah, eventually the uh, the uh, Sydney passed an ordinance that uh, not don't just stop doing that. That was yeah. just yeah. yeah. So what what we're saying is that uh, a time of great turmoil all throughout Europe, but especially in Scotland. And so then what you have is um, you have Charles the First, King of England. He's he's got rule over Scotland, and uh, he's got tendencies that kind of align more with Roman Catholicism. Plus, he was married to a Roman Catholic, so now the Scots are like they're a little wary of him. And uh, he he wanted to have Scotland take a more Anglican approach to their 
to well, their worship. He was, well, he was the one that was tra- introduced to Episcopalian. Episcopalian. Epi- <laughs> well, say yeah, that word. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, just <laughs> sorry. Uh, appropriate. Episcopalianism. Yes, that is a mouthful. He tried to introduce Episcopalianism. Yes, and, and as a gateway, they pretty much all felt it was a gateway to Catholicism. Well, this is the thing. it was a Trojan horse. The Anglican Church, the Church of England, right. founded Henry VIII and all that, and he was the he had established himself as the head of the church. Uh, yeah, it's basically it's very similar. Look, they didn't want to have to come up with a whole bunch of new stuff. It's like right. let's just we'll call it this, and we'll do our practices and uh, and our belief systems a little differently. And there's some things that they did not do. And again, that that comes from Protestantism and Martin Luther it's a protest. Yeah, it's a exactly. So the, the Scots were having none of it, right? So they basically they uh, they said, hey, you know what? Let's uh, I'll tell you what. I mean, he's okay as a king. Let's come up with uh, a national declaration that we will give to him. Uh, which is the National Covenant, and say, look, you, we're fine under your rule. Uh, you seem to be okay. We're, we're, we're cool with that. However, please don't try and force us to practice Anglicanism or those, uh, or those doctrines. We're happy with Presbyterianism. So that uh, so they signed that up. They signed that up, and that was what happened in on, on in 1638. Okay, and uh, there's a fun little other story that kind of you know because yeah he was um, he was trying to sneak that in, uh, thinking that they they it's so close that they probably won't even notice. So he had uh, William Loud, the Archbishop of Canterbury, come up with basically a new prayer book, and they uh, and they and the bishop some of the bishops uh, in Scotland there come up with a new national prayer book. And uh, we're just going to slide this in there, and you'll start doing this, and it'll be it'll be fun and fine, and you'll like it. Except that the uh, at the uh, first, and I believe this happened in St. Giles, the dean of of Edinburgh starts delivering this sermon, and uh, this is the legend now is that there was a shopkeeper woman, a street vendor, who was attending the service, and some some think maybe she was planted there because look at the, at this time tensions were very high anyway. She, he starts delivering the sermon with these Anglican bents, and she gets so upset, she yells at him that he should get a, a colic in the stomach and hurls a stool at his head. Wow. It's not proper church behavior usually, but what it did was uh, it basically started a riot. People got really upset. They started yelling and screaming, uh, bricks and stones. It's like the spring with the street it's, vendor. Uh, get yeah, you, boy, when you start messing with people's uh, beliefs and how they want to practice them, you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're playing It's always with fire. the street vendors. They're starting <laughs> It's the Hey, those are people there on <laughs> the, the street, and they're, they're closer to the rocks and sticks, yeah. Uh, yeah. which were being hurled. So basically, this starts a mob, and eventually what it leads to is Charles the first is trying to put this down and battle these uh, the people that are increasingly becoming militant. Uh, right. It's not just a mob. This is a this is an ongoing movement. No, it, it's exactly. not a one night. No, no, it didn't, it's not it a didn't night just, of craziness. Right. It didn't yeah. just pop up. Yeah. It was going it, it was kept going. It was it fomenting. Had, it had legs. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It was fomenting yeah. for quite a while. And so these things basically just agitated enough people. And uh, so now they're battling with the government forces. And they're not they're not very good fighters. Well there there's not a lot of structure. So yeah. they win some skirmishes but what happens basically eventually it leads to the the war of the bishops and i believe the war of the three kingdoms so now you've dragged england scotland and ireland into all this mess and uh eventually you know uh, charles gets executed for for high treason right he's going up against oliver cromwell it's it's really convoluted it's it's fascinating but yeah. it's very involved so basically uh, what happens now we come back to our our folks here who are protesting and generally they're called the covenanters and those are the folks who are... are they uh, signed their declaration. They, they, they wanted right. to stay Presbyterian. Yes. Charles is fine, but, you know, this and is most what of them we're, we're going to do. Yeah, exactly. Most yeah. of them were just expressing their displeasure. However, uh, again, we said there were some that were militarized, and they came to a, uh, a loss at the Battle of Bothwell Bridge, or Bothwell Brig, on June 22nd, 1679. So, so some time has passed, during which time, lots of people being buried... At Greyfriars Kirkyard, from yeah, generally from the from the plague, but but from the daily plague. life as well. Yeah, everything from the plague, daily life, and these battles. Oh, I was going to ask you, did that change the landscape of the uh, churchyard? At yes, all? yeah, that's a, it's a good point. The church itself, even to this day, when you go and look at the kirkyard, you can see that the the entire structure is on a mound, and it is oh, quite man. literally a mound of bodies. And in yeah. the rain, 
When it rains, bones spring up out of the ground. Oh, there. boy. That's yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's not the... We're going to get to the meat of it yes, here in a minute. But, so to speak. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, so, so that's... Words, I guess. <laughs> Well, not for their show. Yeah. This is uh, there's no meat left. It's uh, you're getting out of this, and too bad the dog wasn't around. I'm sure he had a would have had a <laughs> yeah a, a field day. Yeah. Uh, well, th- okay, so there you go. So basically, they lose. Here's a little fun fact here: the Covenanters numbered about three thousand, the government forces about fifteen thousand, and as Scott brought up, they were pretty unorganized. They're fighting between themselves. They lost about six hundred men around that, and uh, government troops not so many. So they get taken prisoner. And then march two by two, some 40 miles? Yeah, about 40 miles. Which is a long bike ride. But yeah. imagine uh, with, Walking. with not great shoes. Yeah, yeah, chained to somebody else. Yeah, and uh, they end up at? Greyfriars Kirkyard. And so, yeah, in this area, uh, it, what's it called? It's the... Uh, they named it the Covenanters Prison. Which is just an area adjacent just to the out- outside church. the yeah. church with a big wall around it, no shelter of any kind. And it was also... Uh, the winter. We we're approaching the winter, I believe. Right. Right? Yeah, well, yeah. See, this battle takes place uh, midsummer. By the time this all happens, they get back there. They're having to endure winter months in Scotland. <laughs> with right. relatively little shelter. Very you know, poor food, very little of it. I thought now they. I thought they got came back. They put twelve hundred in the Kirkyard. Were there three thousand or twelve hundred? No, I believe uh, the folks that ended up at the at the um, at the graveyard there right. numbered around twelve hundred. Okay, right. And and you you know more about this. How like they started? Uh, there was attrition. Well, they yeah, there was off. attrition. You know, there were snipers posted. Anyone that tried to get out was shot. Um, but there were, you know, there definitely was, it wasn't a perfect system. Uh, they, they were able, some of them were able to bribe their way <laughs> right, out. Right, right. Yeah, if you knew somebody who lived in town, yeah. you were forbidden to speak with them, but they may be able to give you a get little you, bit of money. Yeah, get yeah. you some money or get you out, you know, the same way things probably still work today. What and, happened if you didn't do, were, were that lucky? Uh, well, you just, uh, a lot of them just died yeah. right there in the field. <laughs> yeah, outside. exposure. When it rained, yeah. it snowed, whatever. There was not even, there was nothing to even get underneath. Right. And now I believe that you eventually could get get your way out if you just swore an oath to the king and that you would, uh, right. you know, kind of d- dig whatever he's, he's he's laying down there. And these people were so fervent in their beliefs. A lot of them just said, like, no way. No. And they yeah, kill just, me. Yeah, or let which, me die. Which happened? Right, it did. And there was there was one man who was overseeing this operation. He was the king's regent in Scotland. Yeah, the uh, Lord Advocate George Mackenzie. Right. And what's his nickname, Scott? Bloody George Mackenzie. And I'm not doing an accent. I can't do it. <laughs> he gets mad when I do one, so I, yeah, I won't do one here. No, but you have to be spot on. But yeah, tying into tonight's theme, he plays a very central role, and uh, he's the high judge. And he's just following the letter of the law, uh, yes, according it, to... Even though he's known as Bloody George McKenzie, he, he wasn't like um, Vlad Dracul or anything. He was, yeah. he was a very well-educated man who just a few years earlier had fought in court on behalf of Protestants yeah. uh, and their rights. And he had also gone on record sometime earlier during some witch trials as right. saying... I think there's a lot less witches than everybody seems to yeah. think. <laughs> yeah, very you know, level-headed kind I of feel, guy. I feel yeah. like most of these people that we decided were witches, it was because of the torture. Yeah. So this yeah, exactly. is the kind of person he was. A little bit progressive, too. You know, yes. Just, to, just to, in, in his, you know what, trying to be fair. Right. On the other side of that, I think he was just a real stickler for, you know, for the rules. So if it came down to it, either you were banished or executed uh, these are the rules, and uh, I'm going to enforce them. So ultimately what happened was, the, the, you know, these 1,200 people in the Kirkyard dwindled down to about 300. Oof, yeah. And then they decided they were going to take those 300 and put them on a ship and sell them into slavery. <laughs> yeah. So they were put on this boat. They were chained up in the hold. The ship promptly went out and got caught in a storm and destroyed on a beach. And they were all chained up below, and almost all of them died. Wow. After spending all that time in the Kirkyard. Yeah. 
That's so your reward. That's yeah. your reward. So, and that's we're talking about the three hundred now that made it onto the ship. There were twelve hundred in the Kirkyard. So that's nine hundred that have yeah. not made it out of the Kirkyard, <laughs> aside from a few bribes here and there. Right. Do you do you know how many survived the uh, the shipwreck? Um, I I can't remember off the top of my head, but I feel like it was um, maybe fifty or sixty or something like wow. that. Wow, yeah. yeah, a limited number. But th- that's the thing. So many people died. They actually called that the killing time. Yes, right? yes. Yeah, that's and that's what he's kind of known for. Right now, why don't you tell me what happened to uh, you know? And he he lived out his term and his life. Yeah, uh, George Bloody McKenzie. Eventually, he died, and for reasons that I'm not entirely clear on, he was buried in a mausoleum in the Kirkyard inside the Covenanters' prison. Right in in that in that adjacent area. But you know what? To be fair, many famous Scots are buried there. That's so, true. Uh, that's true. So yeah, if you were a person of a high rank or position like he was, it's very likely that's where you would end up. That's a good point. And he has a nice little round, uh, which, which nice they, is not the word. This, <laughs> this well, is probably this nice is at the where, time. This is where this this is yeah. where this episode's going to take a turn. No, the the uh, well, no. What happens there is not nice. You cannot call something known as the Black Mausoleum nice. I'm sure when it was built and was brand, you know, the paint's wet. Like, look, it, it's a, it's a nice little structure. Everyone that I've ever read about that's seen it has called it ugly. Okay, well, now because I'm just saying, yeah. Well, now the, the, the time you, is uh, bloody. The time is uh, time has passed, and uh, lore and legend has built up. Scottish kids used to go and stand outside the mausoleum and chant for Bloody Mackenzie to come out. Oh boy! Bloody Mackenzie, come here if you dare. Lift the snake and draw the bar. So that was a little bit of the history of Greyfriars Kirkyard. Now let's go up to the present day. In the present day, a lot of scary things are still happening there. And that's that's what's fascinating about it. And that's why Forrest makes fun of me. But <laughs> not so there's much. not – well, there's not a lot of things that that I'm so terrified of that I wouldn't try to participate in them, especially it was the whole point of this show was that you know eventually someday we would experience something that we couldn't explain. I'll just tell you right now I'm not going to this place. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, this is, this is what's interesting about this place as – as a haunted site, as a tourist attraction, as a genuine historical site, is the frequency of these events. And the documentation. The documentation, but also um, the severity. And look, it, it, again, we were talking about this earlier, but it's not uh, – people aren't getting killed, but they are getting scratched and blood is being drawn. Yes. Not, and no some gaping cases, wounds, but like definitely like a, a, a bloody scrape. Well, and in some cases, people are having um, issues related to what's happened to them there that have stuck with them for the rest of their lives to oh, this really? day. Like, yes. like uh, you're not just talking well, about let's, nightmares. Well, let's, let's okay. not get ahead of ourselves. Right. The way this all got started was that in 1998, a homeless man broke into the Kirkyard seeking shelter from a really bad rainstorm. Now, I don't know why you would go to a place where people were left outside to die well, in the 1600s, I, you know what? but it's, he probably didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. yeah. So. I, I think it's, you know, look, when it's raining really hard and, and you know, Scotland yeah. gets cold. Yeah, it does. It does. So you, you want to get out of the rain? Yeah. Through your pants right, right. to the bone. So. The guy broke into the into the Kirkyard. He then further broke into the Covenanters' prison. And then of all the places he chose to try to get into, he picked bloody George McKenzie's mausoleum. Right. Otherwise known as the Black Mausoleum. But it's, it's one of the more prominent, uh, you know, buildings. Yeah, uh, it is one of the uh, – yeah, and it probably there. looked like it was going to protect him from the elements. Yeah. So he goes up to it. It's got these two huge metal doors. You can see pictures of it on our on website. On the front, yeah. Can't get in. It's locked up. But he notices when he looks through the cracks in the door that he can see a hole in the back. So he goes around, and the hole is a big enough hole in the wall that he can shimmy inside. So he goes inside, pulls his stuff through the hole. He's in there. And for whatever reason, he's exploring. He's trying to figure out – not that it's a huge room because it's not that big. But he's like – he's looking around and he's standing next to George McKenzie's coffin when the grate, the wooden grate that he's standing on collapses or who knows what. And yeah. he falls through a hole past the coffin into a pit underneath the coffin that is filled with bones, pieces yeah. and parts of multiple people. Wow. Now, whatever happened to him down there, we'll never really know. But he took off like a shot and got out of there. Left his bag. Left his bag and departed the building. 
And we know this because a witness spotted him on the way Yeah, I believe uh, the night watchman or the night caretaker uh, saw saw him him running out, panicked. And I think it's always been intimated that uh, he didn't just see bones, which scared him so much. Yeah, I mean, you're already breaking into a mausoleum and hanging out by a coffin. (laughs) What's a a few more bones? Yeah, what's a few more bones? But but whatever happened, he left. And although there had always been rumors of ghosts in the cemetery, which there are, in every good spooky sure. cemetery, especially yeah. ones that are hundreds of years old, things after this event really took a turn. There was a lot of activity, and a local resident saw an opportunity to start a tour company and take people in there and probably make some pretty good money watching them get scared. Well, sure. You know, there's a lot of uh, 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 tourists that come through. Uh, well, old... everyone's coming to see Greyfriars Bobby, yeah. right? right? The, everybody wants to come see the puppy Well, it's, it's adjacent to the old town, uh, the old section of town. Right. Uh, as part of your, uh, you know, your visitation of the city, you got to hit that. Yeah, you got to hit the tour. He opens a company called City of the Dead. Now, right. Come on. That's one of the best names ever. <laughs> this guy is a marketing genius. He's right up yeah. there with Steve Jobs. His name is Jan Andrew Henderson, and he wrote an outstanding book, a really great read, which I would encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of after you hear this episode. If yeah, you, if you very like comprehensive. Story. Yes, yeah. the book is called The Ghost That Haunted Itself, and it's a fascinating story, fascinating book. Well-researched and well-documented. Prior to writing the book, he started this tour company. He's taking groups of, uh, or his, his plan is to take groups of people, 10 or 20 people, through into the Covenanters' prison where all these events have been taking place. The problem is the Edinburgh Council won't let anyone in there. They've got it locked up. And they basically say to him, look, we appreciate that you want to do this, but we have liability to think about here. There is no question that there are issues in the Covenanters' prison area, and you're not going in there unless you are insured all the way up to your eyeballs. So he does it. He proves that he's insured, and this and this goes to Forrest's point of view, which he I think he mentioned in the Queen Mary episode about this is a business or someone with liability reacting to paranormal events yeah. on a business level. Two business entities, yes, taking something that is and not passing judgment whether it's real or not, but what they're saying is that this is happening enough, and we can see that this is happening that we want assurances, right. That people are protected, or they're at least you know this this tour is insured, uh, like the Queen Mary, uh, not using a room that they could be making money on. It's a business consideration. Like you know what, enough weird stuff is happening here. We're going to take this seriously enough to take do this something. room out of the loop. Yeah, exactly. And that's and that's the same thing the Edinburgh Council wanted to do. So J. A. Henderson got the insurance he needed, and he opened City of the Dead, and he started taking people through on tours. the The culmination of the tour was. Bloody George McKenzie's mausoleum, otherwise known as the Black Mausoleum. Yeah, it's the finale. It is the finale. And because the belief is amongst all the locals and pretty much everyone worldwide who's familiar with this story is that his tomb was disturbed. And that is the reason these things have really gone off the deep end. And and he was the kind of the – he was the – Catalyst? Yeah, he was the overseer of the the awful death of the the Covenanters. And – so he's the focus of this energy, and they and they feel like he's still, you know, he's yeah. unsettled. Right. So especially after this break-in where his bones were disturbed. So they finish the tour yeah. in the mausoleum. And it's like, great, this sounds like kind of a typical tour or whatever. You know, we're all going to you. But the, the only thing is once you step inside that mausoleum, there are a wide variety of things that might happen. Now, the general feeling of the tour guides were, and there were multiple tour guides. They expanded to where they had two or three or four. I don't even know how many at one point, but I read in his book there were lots of interviews with different mm-hmm. folks. The tour guides would take people into the mausoleum because this is the place where the strangest stuff happened. Now, what was happening to folks when they went in there was that they were getting weak need, feeling nauseous. People were passing out. Mm-hmm. Some people were passing out before they even got to the mausoleum, and there were several cases of people just being carried unconscious right out of the Covenanters' prison before they even got to the Black Mausoleum and, like, put in a car and wow. taken away. Yeah. This happened to a lot of folks. Other folks got in there and became nauseous or weak-kneed or their legs were frozen. There's the appearance of radical cold spots, which have been documented with paranormal investigations. Mm-hmm. There was uh, a woman who had her hair pulled. <laughs> I want to get out of here now. 
there were several women, there seems to be a lot of women involved, actually, who had hands put over their mouths, or they felt a hand on their arm. A feeling of suffocation. Yes. An actual constriction of airflow. Yes. There's another woman who had a hand grab her ankle. And to this day, she says her ankle still feels cold. Oh, boy. And on top of that, when she goes to the beach or something, she gets a little sun. It does not tan there. There's a handprint oh. around her ankle. <laughs> All right. So this yeah. is a this is not a joke. What's happening yeah. here now? What the the other thing that's happening is the appearance of welts, gashes, cuts, claw marks on one guy's Adam's apple, yeah. claw marks on the back of the neck. People passing out, waking the up, scratches, with scratches yes, on their arms, right. deep bruises like they've been punched. Yeah. And and not even feeling when it's happening, and not well, feeling the scratches either. That's the either. interesting thing. It's not and, like you know you see an invisible person beating them up. No, they come out, and usually the person next to them says, "Hey, you're, yeah, what's your, your neck's bleeding?" Yeah, you know? and it's like it, there was another case where a woman was like, they, "They're like, you have some scratches on the back of your neck," and she's like, yeah. "Really? Where?" And then they turn around, they look back, and it's like, "No, they're, they're going away." So anyway, that right there, that okay, already you can say, "Oh well, people are nauseous because there's weird fumes in there. They're passing out because well, there, there's electromagnetic." There's, a, um, there's some theories yeah, about electromagnetic right. energy, scientific uh, yes. uh, theories. Yes, and because the people that are being affected are not only believers; they're full-blown skeptics. There's, you know, they're one of the guys who I think passed out before he even got to the mausoleum was someone who was like, "I don't believe in this stuff," yeah. but he's like, "I can't explain what happened to me." Right. And a lot of them, when they wake up. They describe a feeling that they said has stuck with them for the rest of their lives uh, of coldness and fear. I read one story in the book that this little girl comes out. She's 11 or 12, and her mom notices that she's got some bloody scratches on her uh, neck or just uh, towards yes. her uh, neck and shoulder. I so, that one. Oh, my God. Are you okay? What is that? And that's the thing. It's not like she screamed out, ouch, stop that, you know, and, and blame somebody else in the tour. She didn't even know what happened until she right. came out. That's right. That's a good point. And, that's and there's the a lot of cases like didn't, that. Didn't they fall down. They weren't associated with right. being unconscious. <clears throat> it's not just, that's right. Forrest makes a very good point right now, which I didn't, myself didn't even think about until this moment, but the the scratches are not necessarily always associated with people who've passed out or fallen down. I would say most, yeah. From what again, from the the stories I've read, it, mostly not. And the people that have bruising is not from them falling down. I mean, the, people do pass out. And um, uh, this will be a side thing. I was watching a, a YouTube documentary on it uh, called "Haunted Greyfriars," and it has an interview uh, with one of the. Uh, City of the Dead tour guides uh, named Ian Robertson. And Is that the one with the super cheesy effects in it? I believe so, but yeah. I found them entertaining. Oh, uh, come on. <laughs> All right. No, but there's, they do interview no, but some... the interviews are good. Yeah, they the interview some, some folks, and, uh, and I applaud his efforts. It was a lot of, I know there's a lot of work to do. But uh, uh, Ian Robertson said, as far as frequency goes, it could be a couple a month to a couple a week to five or six a day. Right. And that's when you start getting into, boy, there's there's something going on here. This is considered, by the way, one of the most documented cases in the world of unexplained paranormal events. There are literally hundreds of witnesses and hundreds of photographs of the physical damage they, they suffered. As of 2012, there were over 450 documented attacks with 180 of those people completely losing consciousness. Wow. 180 yeah. people. Some people even suffered broken fingers. Oh, yeah. I, re- I remember reading about so, that, and, which and, that's yeah. the thing that scares me the most. Yeah. Uh, I'll, you know what? I'll, Who wants I'll, a broken bone? Well, I'll take some scratches, sure, in yeah. the name of science and, and this podcast, and maybe a bruise or two, uh, or even um, uh, passing out. I, I have heard of people wetting themselves. That's I don't want that either because yeah. it's just embarrassing. Now, if you want to get fringe, what that you know, what is that that's going on? I mean, yes, there might be – I've certainly heard of that um, – you know, high uh, high frequency vibration, low frequency uh, electromagnetic fields can all make people sick and can affect these uh, uh, feelings in people. Oh, yes, um, and we should point out, by the way, in case anyone before anyone else points it out to us, yes, we are aware that Edinburgh University has an AI lab, artificial oh, intelligence yeah. lab, right on the other side of the wall from the Black Mausoleum. Right, but this is the thing. It's so that accounts for some of it, in my opinion. But the hardcore skeptics are going to say, well, all that's also triggered. These feelings, uh, you know, of uh, uh, gloom and despair and op- oppressiveness and, uh, 
you know, constricted airways, all this is triggered as biochemical reactions to a, uh, an outside force. And that, uh, even now there's theories and you probably know more about this. Cause I think you've, you've read some, uh, you've read up on this, uh, that seeing ghosts is actually just a biophysical response to, uh, outside stimuli, stimuli. Right? Yeah, you, you, no, I haven't read anything about. Oh, that. I thought you. I, <laughs> I thought you were. No, isn't that one of the? Wait, I'm on the spot. Yeah, no, isn't that I one know. of those things that, uh, eat, that now one of the theories from again from debunkers is yeah. that uh, even the the act of seeing ghosts or anything kind of supernatural is basically just a, a physiological response. That, oh no, that I didn't know that. That's triggered by something. That's a plausible theory. Well, it's you know what I I I look at it this way, and this just kind of occurred to me. It's like the um, when people have a near death experience, an NDE. And they see the white light. Well, uh, neurologists can trigger that by yes, stimulating heard about this. Per- parts of the brain. They have a thing, a helmet. <clears throat> they call it the God helmet. Right. That's, and, and that it can, simulates well, the white the, light this is the feeling. Thing. Right? Okay, so this is, this is the parallel, is that, yes, you can uh, electrostimulate parts of the brain and cause this effect where you see, you're, you're seeing a white, bright white light down a tunnel and you feel like you're traveling towards it. <clears throat> However, there's many people who have experienced this past that where they have gone into the light and have talked to other beings and uh you know family members who have passed away spiritual figures of all manner and and have come back and i remember one where uh, a famous case where a guy floated up he was in a hospital bed but pronounced dead he claims he floated up to the ceiling and was reading the serial numbers off the smoke alarm in the room, and uh, you know, and he came back. He came back to life, <gasps> and he told his doctors that, and they checked it. And it's like, well, he, uh, yeah, he's got that right. So th- my point is, like, yes, I think some scientific phenomenon can explain part of it and maybe cause part of it. But there's another part, like I said, with the injuries and the scratching and the bruising and and things coming and going, that. The scientific explanation leaves me a little flat. Like, I, I don't I think it covers it. It doesn't right. cover everything. Even when you look at the electromagnetic, and I'm not trying, and by the way, I don't want us on this show to ever be accused of debunking plausible no. science. We're, look, we're, we're trying to look at everything. Right. We and, are trying yeah. to look at everything, and, but and I'm, we're not, say, I'm not proposing, we're not proposing any point of view. We're letting, we're leaving that up to you. Well, yeah, but I mean, we're, we're well, a little biased, you know what? I'm, of course. I'm sorry, we I take that back. We wouldn't be doing the show. I mean, <laughs> we wouldn't be doing the show. You're absolutely but, right. But still... I, I think that um, I, I'm telling you know what we're telling you what we think, but we're not necessarily saying you have to think. No, that. you don't have you to know, think. Right? It. Yeah, we're not King Charles. <laughs> yeah. But the, so the point is that the, whatever's going on here, yeah. I, the, even the 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 scientific ex- explanations that have been put forward, which are um, incomplete at best, yeah. None of them account for physical injury, right? Uh, of the nature that's happening here. Okay. And the fact that this is so well documented and so direct and in some cases for permanent for people who encounter it, yeah. that all that tells me is that whatever is in there, it's, it's not good. It's malevolent, yeah. whether yeah. it's science or not. It's malevolent in terms of how it relates to human, humanity. Right. And I personally will never go there. <laughs> I'm not going there. Yeah. No matter what I believe, and no, I've never seen a ghost. And yes, one of the things that we've said on this show, even in our small number of initial episodes, is that we both would like to experience something we can could not explain. In certain circumstances. But you can take that one right off yeah. the list for me, because I'm not going. Well, again, you know what? This goes back to what we said at the beginning of the show, is that fear can be fun and interesting on when a roller you, coaster, yeah. When you can, when under controllable circumstances, okay. So now, when you get to a spot where you're going to have something, uh, a crazy experience, possibly, this is crossing paths contr- with yeah. something you can't understand. Well, that's the thing; you don't understand it, and maybe you can't control it. Uh, the only thing you can do is not go there. And it's typically, poltergeist has what they call a focus. You know this, right? It's yeah. A, it's a person that it's centered around, and you know a lot more this, about poltergeist. Well, this than is, this I do, is but... yeah, the late uh, some of the latest um, you know theories and. Um, uh, study done on it suggests that uh, it's not um, spiritual in nature. There's some kind of uh, it's a psychic energy of sorts, and you, yeah, usually focused on somebody who's younger. Usually a, a, a teenage girl. A lot of the time is the focus. There's a, a lot of emotion, a lot of energy, uh, and and uh, it won't be directed. Uh, you know, things. Um, I remember this, uh, hearing this one story where a guy 
worked at like a Toys R Us, and he would go, anytime that he was in the back of the stock room, stuff would fly off the shelves. What was that? Get out of here. Yeah. And so once, and then once he left, it stopped. But this is a little different. Yeah, this is very different. In this case, there is no focus because this thing can Just, attack yeah. anyone that comes into the mausoleum and in some cases is even near. Oh, by the way, in addition to all the stuff that's happening, the people on the tours, including the guides, are seeing some large white thing oh. flittering about between the headstones and in the yard outside the mausoleum. Wow. But when you look at it, it's not there. But everyone is seeing it out of the corner of their eyes. Yeah. In addition to this, groups, as they approach the mausoleum, hearing sounds, low growls, deep, dark laughter, yeah. growling, banging, and in the people within the same group, you could take like 10 people who are approaching the mausoleum, they all hear something, but then when you poll them, it turns out half of them heard one thing and the other half heard something completely right. different. Like one half said, would hear laughing. Yeah. The other half would hear growling. Which, which is actually a common phenomenon. Right. With, and with groups that experience else. paranormal activity. And that just, which brings to bear the whole, one of the long questions I've had for the longest time about all this stuff is like the things that you are perceiving, are they really happening or yeah. is this something controlling your mind? Is this something triggering each individual individually? Are right. they all experiencing their own thing triggered by something that they're all externally experiencing exactly but it's not just there uh, don't the uh the apartments the flats and the houses that's near right. everything the place? around Greyfriars kirkyard the flats there was one flat where this woman had uh lived with her uh, boyfriend i believe it might have been a husband i can't remember but um and she he was quite a skeptic and she had a large collection of stuffed animals and i mean this is such a classic thing but like and she had them on the in a corner on the floor in one of her bedrooms. And she and her boyfriend went out uh, one night. They came back home. They go upstairs. <gasps> they are all on her bed, stacked in a perfect pyramid. Mm. And it's just like, what is that? Who does that? Yeah. All right, let's well, say somebody to broke Toby it. Toby Hooper in, yeah. <laughs> in that great movie. Yeah, what movie? Oh, you know, you know what I'm talking about. The, no. stat, the Kitchen Chairs. Oh, oh, yeah. You're, oh, sorry, Poltergeist. Exactly. Yeah, there so, you go, Poltergeist. But, um, yeah, but that's not the only thing that happened to her. There's one yeah. other case where she they went out, they came back home. All of her pictures on the first floor had been taken off the wall and stacked in a neat pile in yeah. the middle of her living room. Yeah. Again, these are all seemingly typical types of... Uh, ghostly activity that Ad people report. Additionally, uh, Jay Henderson's tour business headquarters and his home burnt to the ground. Yeah, that's a little weird. And the fire, the fire department could not find the source of the fire. Mm. So anyway, there's a culmination for this. And eventually what happens is a reporter and a spiritualist minister who we made a, who we quoted at the beginning of the show decide that they're going to go and do an exorcism of the Kirkyard and specifically of Covenanter's prison. The minister's name was Colin Grant, and spiritualism is... He's, a, he's an ordained minister, I believe, yes. and, uh, but would perform uh, these types of uh, rituals and ceremonies, uh, exorcisms and blessings and cleansings, things like that. And he uh, he would do this quite often. So he was, you know, he'd experienced quite a bit of this. But but I believe what I saw from articles that I'd read that he was a little bit of an empath, and that he felt he yes. saw and felt a lot of what he claimed was going on at these places. Right, and that and that was one of the things, you know. And of course, a lot of people might discount him and say, "Oh, empath, what is that?" But the, yeah. you know, the the reality of the situation was when he went to the to conduct this exorcism, as he got to the Covenanters prison gate. He stepped through. The reporter who was with him described him. Uh, Susan Burrell. Susan Burrell, yeah. who described him as becoming uh, weak in the knees and yeah. having to sort of lean on the wall. And I think at one point actually have to come back out for a minute. Yeah, he had to uh, gather his strength and uh, right. you know, courage and thoughts and everything else. And he went back in and was there for hours. Uh, walking around, performing a, a very, uh, what appeared to be a very honest and sincere exorcism yeah. of the Kirkyard. He's, he's reading Bible passages. He's, he's performing blessings. Right. Uh, you know, very, pretty straightforward. Right. So at the last moment, he goes over to Mackenzie's mausoleum, the Black Mausoleum. 
and he goes up to it and he balks. basically decides that he can't go in there. Yeah, he'd been uh, feeling increasingly apprehensive, I believe, and just really, the way that Susan described it, uh, you know, just not good about any of this. Right. Like, just heavy, oppressive feeling, um, not feeling well, physically not feeling that well, uh, very weak. Right. And uh, didn't want to do it, but he um, he mustered through it. Right? Yeah, he did, except for the mausoleum. And when he came back out, he, he, more, he intimated that he had... Uh, he felt like he had helped hundreds of trapped souls right. move on. But, but a he, few. He, well, he said specifically there is one larger entity here that I can't do anything about. Yeah. And he also said, I'm afraid this may have killed me. That was in uh, November, I believe. It was a year later. I think in 1999. 99, yeah, November right. of 1999. Right. January of 2000, he dropped dead of a heart attack. Yeah. 67 years old. Now, now yeah. to be fair, he had a heart condition. Right. He, and was, he was on medication right. for it. He was supposedly improving. Uh, he was conducting uh, some sort of seance or something when he died. With what a, were with his a, last words? Uh, with a woman uh, who had... We can paraphrase uh, it. But, <laughs> who had hired him. Yeah. But uh, basically was kind of giving her a reading. And I think as... And a little bit of... According to his wife, a little bit of sense of humor, yeah. he, he said... I've not got any good news left, only bad news. In a, in a kind of a yeah. joking way. Yeah, and then he but, dropped but yeah, well, But he was kind of like, I boy, I've exhausted this and yeah. myself... We're kind of done here. Right. And then he really was done there. Yeah. So that's that's the story of Colin Grant, you know, God rest his soul. The but the main thing is when you combine all this stuff together, the the evidence, the photographic evidence, the hundreds of witnesses, Colin Grant's experience, uh the fact that it that something There's him there's one close. photo that Susan Burrell took where there is a shape in the window behind him. Uh, you know, and of course, who yeah. knows what that is? Could yeah. be a shadow. But wouldn't, you know, we all like to believe it might be something. So, uh, no, but this is, but this gets into, now we're getting into. Oh, and oh, just yeah. and before we go sure. quickly, because I know we're about to segue, but like the last thing I want to say is it's important to note that not a single medium that has ever attended the Kirkyard has mentioned George McKenzie right. by name. Right, not one. Well, this is what we get. Uh, goes back to what we were saying earlier with the history is that he wasn't Torquemada. He's not torturing people. I mean, he ex he's exacting brutal justice of the day, and he wasn't very lenient. Uh, but he didn't seem particularly uh, evil or uh, I don't know uh, cruel. I mean, the, the judgments that they handed down, yes, but he's following the letter of the law as put down by the king. So he just wasn't, yeah, he, he gave no, uh, uh, no measure of, uh, of grace. <laughs> you know, he just kind of, he wasn't a good guy towards the end. No, well, that's the thing. You're, you're, you're passing down some brutal, some, some brutal judgments, a lot of them, including execution. So right. not the most executing pe yeah, people in the name guy. of, uh, religious intolerance. Right. Following his job a little too, a little too well. But this is, yeah, he wasn't, uh, you know, a practicing devil worshiper and, and uh, hell bent, shall we say, on doing uh, bad things to people. But uh, a lot of people didn't like his judgments and uh, he was hated. And of course, you know, he's attributed to the, uh, the theme of the killing time. But this is the thing. I don't know that that is the thing that's driving well, this. Well, yeah, you don't. I mean, do you really believe that? I mean, you know how I feel. Do you, How what do, do you, you feel? Well, I mean, this is the thing. Before I get into that, the the, the one other story that I want to put, that I want to share is about the birds. And there was one of the tour guides, I think it was David Pollock, I'm not positive, but uh, with City of the Dead. And he had mentioned an experience with a, this bird, seeing this bird sitting outside the mausoleum in front of the door, just staring into the darkness. I guess the door was open. 
and it was there a long time and he even went over to it and got real close to it and it didn't fly away and it was just staring into the mausoleum. Not at him. Nope. Yeah. Didn't even regard mm-hmm. him really. Mm-hmm. And eventually he he left and the bird was still there and when he came back the next day it was dead in front of the mausoleum. Oh. And there's more than a few cases of wildlife dying around the mausoleum yeah. or near the mausoleum or on the steps to the mausoleum. Right. And we have another story about birds. It, birds come up in in these in the paranormal world, in my opinion, based yeah. on just the few stories that we've been exposed to already. But I know Colin Grant had a heart condition, and you know he was sixty seven, right. which to me in this day and age isn't really that old. Yeah. Uh, but still, he died two months after he went there and said, "I think that I may die from this." Yeah. And it's just to me, I feel like sometimes if you have a brush with an entity like that uh, it's it's like the whole harry potter lightning bolt thing or whatever it's <laughs> right like, it you, leaves this, a mark it leaves a mark and it it may be something especially something that we don't understand that might be with you forever and, and in colin yeah. grant's case it might have been the thing that did kill him 60 days later right or it might be something that shaves a few years off your life and you just don't even know it right i don't you know i don't know all i know is that if i'm not over there yeah i don't run any risk of intersecting <laughs> right. that issue well again see again it goes back to our are you early- going I would. Go. I would. We don't have any yeah. money or time right now, no. but if we did, would you go to? Would you go? Oh, yeah. into the Black Mosque? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, but this is. I uh, wouldn't even go into the Covenanters' prison. I will yeah. come and look at that dog statue. Great Friars. <laughs> hey, Bobby, maybe maybe fine. that's enough. Yeah, people just around there experience. Okay, things. I mean, but this, you're right. I'm not going to that. But, <laughs> but no, that's a, I. I have some Scottish heritage. I would love to visit the. Uh, so the, do the, I. The, the, the beautiful country. My of, people of Scotland. came down through the Orkneys, um, and I love history, as you probably would have guessed earlier. For the, from the show, but this is the thing. It's it's um, not that I I discount any of that. Uh, it's just it's just for for me. It's a little bit of like law of averages, and that I don't think that I, nothing ever exciting that exciting ever happens to me. <laughs> I'm saying like I would go there, and like well, you know, you're the guy that uh, you know, you're the eighty percent that nothing happened to. I'm not afraid of it. I, I'm not afraid of the idea. Now, we've, we, we were discussing this quite a bit leading up to the show and even just a few minutes ago um, that it's the roller coaster. It's a controllable circumstance. It's, it's you driving a sports car. These are things that are somewhat controllable. And, um, and not that I think that I can control the, uh, the underworld, but I don't feel, um, yeah, I guess I just don't feel like something would happen to me and that I would be bringing it back. But this is what I'm getting at. It's like, yes, it would be interesting to see something. You know what you certainly... sound like right now. What? It just it reminds me, you know, we, I've lived all over the country, yeah. but I did back and forth a few times, but I did happen to live in Los Angeles when the Northridge earthquake happened. Right. And I remember um, Kevin and Bean, who yeah. are some local radio DJs, coming on the next morning, the morning after the Northridge quake. And making a joke, and it's like yeah. it reminds me of what you just said, where they yeah. said, you know, they say when the big one comes, you know, I don't know, fifty, hundred thousand people are going to die, but you know, somehow I feel like I'm going to be okay. <laughs> well, that, yes, but you know what? Uh, I fully believe this, and this is the thing: I fully believe in the phenomenon. I I don't think like, well, it can't happen to me because it's not real. You, but you just said, no, I no, feel like just, I'll be okay. Just, you literally that's said, just, I feel like yes, I'll be of course. Okay. But that's just, uh, you know, what I'm saying that's just law of averages. In that, again, nothing. I you know, I don't win any contests. These things don't. You know, what I'm saying like I'd be the one guy. That's just I don't have a feeling of dread. It's not like something in the back of my mind. It's like don't go there. The, don't don't you know don't walk into that room. I'm just the one. You know what they you know what the tour guide said. Yeah, they said you, that you're going to be singled out. out. You're going to so be single. Pick out. the one person yeah. out because you were kind of skeptical. They said, "Don't panic, right? Because if you see it attacking someone else, you know you're safe." That's what they would say. Yeah, and this is and this is what I'm. I've said this before. Is as far as like the 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 idea of death does not scare me. I don't want to die. I don't want it cut short. I want as much as I can get. Uh, but the but the but the theory of it, the idea behind it, does not scare me, and. The idea of of ghosts and spirits and ev- and demons, I believe, is you know if we're talking about personal belief, I believe that that is those things are a part of life. Now, as far as Greyfriars and and demons and and uh, evil spirits and things of that nature, no, I don't want to provoke. I don't, any, think it, I don't just, want to provoke that. I don't think it's human. <laughs> Let's uh, let's wrap this up. Yeah, it's about time. We hope you enjoyed the show. Come back in two weeks when we'll have an episode on the discovery and confirmation of Amelia Earhart's last known location. 
I want to thank Judson Crane for our amazing theme music, Ryan McCullough for world-class sound design, and Jim Creative Design. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, on Facebook at the Astonishing Legends Podcast, and also on Twitter. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.